Good afternoon and welcome. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for being with us. I appreciate it. Last spring, Maryland's senior senator Ben Cardin announced that he would retire from the United States Senate next January at the end of his third term. In today's installment in our series of Conversations with the Candidates, we'll meet one of the two leading candidates in the Democratic primary to succeed Senator Cardin. Representative David Trone has represented the 6th Congressional District, which includes all or part of Montgomery, Frederick, Garrett, Allegheny, and Washington counties since 2018, and he joins me today in Studio A. He is a progressive. Representative Trone came to politics after a successful career in business. He is the founder of Total Wine and More, the country's largest wine and spirits retailer. In 2016, Mr. Trone was defeated in his first bid for elective office when he ran in the primary for the 8th District congressional seat that was eventually won by Jamie Raskin. He self-funded that campaign, which at the time was the most expensive House race in the country. Two years later, in 2018, he won a seat in the House representing the 6th District, and he has been re-elected twice. He is largely self-funding this campaign for Senate as well. His most significant opponent in that race is Prince George's County Executive Angela Alsobrooks. David Trone is 68 years old. He lives in Montgomery County. He received a B.A. from Furman University and an M.B.A., from the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. He is married with four adult children and one grandchild. David Trone, as I mentioned, joins us in Studio A. You are welcome to join us as well. We'll take calls a little bit later, but you're welcome to throw us an email if you'd like that address, midday at wipr.org. Mr. Trone, it's great to meet you. Tom, thanks for having us on. Well, thanks for coming in. I appreciate it. So uh, folks in the 6th District, Frederick County, Montgomery County know you pretty well. You've been around for a while uh, in politics. Here in Baltimore, not so much. So let's talk a little bit about your background. It's interesting. Your dad was, uh, for a while, uh, worked for TWA, and then all of a sudden he owned a farm. You and the family moved to western Pennsylvania for part of your growing up. Uh, tell us a little bit about your childhood. Yeah, that was actually uh, central Pennsylvania, right over the Maryland border near Gettysburg. Um, I was born in Chevrolet, Maryland, and my mom was a public school teacher. Uh, she taught in Greenbelt, and we lived in Hyattsville. So we had a local connection, but then after they both graduated Maryland, and then we eventually ended up uh, on this farm in Adams County, Pennsylvania. And uh, God knows what possessed him to do it, uh, but he bought 100 acres, sold insurance, and then slowly over the next couple of years decided to become a farmer. And we had 55,000 chickens, layers, 600 hogs, 200 acres. And we were big-time, full-time farmers. Um, I worked there $1.80 an hour, punched a time clock every day. My younger brothers and sister, we all worked uh, and spent a lot of time on John Deere tractors. <laughs> and then uh, you ended up going in to business school. You went to uh, undergrad and then went to, to Wharton for business school. You actually founded your company, Tonal Wine & More, while you were a student, an MBA student. Yeah, that's right. Uh, my dad was a serial entrepreneur and a wonderful man, but uh, like many folks, he has a disease. Uh, and my dad was uh, an abusive alcoholic. And that led to uh, my parents' marriage dissolution. Uh, my mom left uh, with my sister, went to Cambridge, Maryland, where her family was from originally. And I stayed on the farm with uh, one of my younger brothers, worked for dad, tried to sort things out. And uh, Tom, as you know, it's sometimes it's just impossible to sort something out and bad things happen to good people. And we ran out of cash. 
uh, and dad's farm failed. We went bankrupt, uh, liquidated the farm, and then I had to figure out how to support myself and the rest of the family. And first thing I thought was, I need a job and I need more education. I've always been a great student. I love academics. Uh, so I got accepted schools everywhere and picked the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, went there, took out student loans, uh, spent uh, two great years in Philadelphia, and um, also brokered eggs while I was there. I quickly became a telephone guy. So at the Wharton School of Business, other folks would be writing a resume. I'd be on the telephone selling tractor-trailer trucks of eggs from Georgia to Maryland or Pennsylvania to New York, um, picking up two cents a dozen because I understood the egg business really well. I had one employee. That was me. Uh, I did that for a couple of years uh, and then had another setback. And through those setbacks, you know, you learn toughness. You know, you learn resilience. And over 7 million chickens in the Mid-Atlantic region caught the avian flu. All of them were eradicated, including the chickens that I worked on brokering their eggs for. That was the heart of my business. So quickly, literally overnight, I was out of business again. Uh, but uh, luckily, I had spotted an opportunity to go into the beer and soda. In Pennsylvania, you can't sell wine or spirits. So I opened up a small beer and soda retailer. I've always been a retailer in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, and I called it Beer and Soda Warehouse. I had It was $3 a foot rent. It was a dirty old building in a tough part of town. Uh, I took it as is. Uh, my brother and I built the check stands. Uh, my brother and I built the beer cooler uh, with two-by-fours lumber. We painted a sign on the outside. Uh, we had one really good idea. That was sell things cheap. And boom, we were successful. And we had lots of customers, and we kind of broke up a cartel of people that were all charging too much. And we were always the price, uh, the very aggressive on price. And, you know, there's a lot of folks uh, from the business community who run for office from mayor through, you know, president saying, I know how to run a business, therefore, ergo, I can run a company or around a country or a city or a jurisdiction. Um, you're, uh, you know, aspiring to a another legislative seat. It's not an executive position in the Senate. But how does uh, two things, how does having run a successful business uh, matter to you and inform how you're going to uh, function as a senator? And how does being really rich inform how you're going to be a senator? Well, I guess it's important to state right from the beginning, the obvious is that uh, I was, we were not born wealthy. Uh, when I was 11, 12 years old on the dad, my dad's farm, we didn't even have a toilet in the house. We had an outhouse. So we didn't grow up with much. And then at age 28, when the farm went bankrupt, we had nothing. So I know what it's like to struggle. Uh, I know what it's like to fight. And building a business uh, that went from zero to the nation's largest retailer of wine and spirits, I mean, we have 12,000 team members. We operate in 28 states. You know, our revenues last year were $6 billion. So we're bigger than Costco. Uh, and that, you get there with a lot of fights, a lot of fights on the way, because when you go into another city, you disrupt. They don't want the person selling things cheap and giving great service and having great selection. So whether I'm in you know, Indianapolis or Ann Arbor or Atlanta or Seattle or Miami or San Antonio or Boston, there were already folks that were in those markets, and we had to disrupt 
and take those markets with a better mousetrap. So we've been able to build a better mousetrap, but it's been fight after fight after fight, attacked by state legislators, attacked by local legislators, and sometimes attacked by competitors as they tried to do better. But often they turn government on someone, and government's used as a, as a battering ram to stop competition. And I love competition. The more competition we have, the better country we're going to have. So, you know, bring it on is our position. But you know, we've got, we are so lucky to be successful and so fortunate. And along the way, we tried to really maintain our progressive democratic values. And, you know, we talked before, 25 years ago, we banned the box and began to hire returning. This for people who've uh, had convictions on their yeah. record. Yeah, <laughs> folks that have had a, been arrested or had a conviction, even arrested, often people ask, were you arrested? Not convicted, not adjudicated, but arrested. We banned that box over 25 years ago and started hiring returning citizens. I mean, the last seven years alone, Total Wine and More has hired 1,400 returning citizens. 25 years ago, we put in partner benefits for same-sex marriage. Before anyone thought about that, simply because a young woman came to me and said, my partner's not covered under our insurance plan. I said, why? I said, well, we can't get married. I said, oh, I get it now. So we went down, adjusted the plan. All it takes is a little bit of money to adjust the plan, and you can include a partner, even if they're not married. So we took care of that. And also, Total Wines always had full-time people, 75%. Retail, it's 25%, Tom. And we do the 75% because you can pay higher wages. You have health care. You got disability. got sick leave. You got retirement. You have all the things that let you keep your team. And if you keep the team and have great people, then you take care of the customer and then you have a successful business. So those we did things differently from the beginning because I was the store manager while I was at Wharton effectively. I went there Thursday nights, worked Friday, Saturday. We had no school on Fridays. Worked to Friday, Saturday, went back to Philadelphia on Sunday. And I quickly realized that if I had good people around me taking care of the store, I had time to think. And when I could think, I could get better ideas and make my business better for the customer. And always put the customer first. Who runs the business while you're in politics? Yeah, we've got a great team. Uh, so are, are you actively running the business oh, still? Yeah, no, absolutely not. We've got just way. No, we absolutely not. I retired from the business in 2016 uh, when I ran for the first Senate, Senate's uh, house, house seat. So we have a really great team in there. Uh, and they run, Troy Rice is my CEO. Uh, he runs a business day by day, but we got a great C-level team of, you know, uh, chief information officers. So there's no, there's no uh, potential for conflict of interest in terms of any legislation that might affect your industry or your uh, business? No, zero. The business is all state regulated, mm-hmm. not federal. Totally state regulated. So, so we got a great team that runs it all. Folks that used to work at Home Depot, used to work at, you know, Toys R Us and big retailers around the country. So that team is off and running. And what that did was that gave me a chance to figure out how to leverage our philanthropy. So we've always done a lot of philanthropy through our foundation and through the company all over the country. And last year we worked with almost 9,000 charities throughout the country. That's an important part of being part of your community. It's not just the jobs and the business, but being tied into the roots of the community, no matter what it is. It's MS, it's cancer, it's a Boys and Girls Club. We work with everybody. So that 
philanthropy, we begin to leverage. And in the last five years, uh, we've done over, through the foundation, the family, over $100 million in philanthropy. But the way we can really leverage that is with government. And with government, we can scale and really try and help people that have been left behind, help people that don't have a voice. And those are the things that I, why I went in politics, I'm on a mission. I don't need a job. I'm on a mission. I'm on a mission to change America for the better in the addiction space. And, you know, I lost my nephew in that. Um, addiction, alcoholism runs in my family. It's genetic. It's in our blood. Mental illness, that runs, it's in our family. It's personal to us. So that's another space that we lead Congress in. Uh, the last session, 117th, we put together a biggest task force in Congress, bipartisan, 141 members on mental, illness, mental health and substance use disorder, and we passed 26 bills. We had over 100 bills went out, 26 got signed by the president, and to help uh, in substance use and help in addiction. So we're really getting stuff done, but it's getting done bipartisan. And uh, you and anybody uh, in Congress, uh, in the House or the Senate, uh, who does have a lot of financial resources are always subject to the charge that you buy your seats. You spent $10 million in your first race. Uh, you, you could spend $30, $40 million this time. How do you respond to people who say, oh, here's a rich guy. He's buying his seat in the Senate or buying his seat in the Congress? Yeah. Whether that's a fair or unfair uh, accusation. No, no, I certainly hear it. And we've been so fortunate and so lucky to be successful. But at the same time, I think people you know, realize that we work for it. You know, we earned it. So I'm using our resources as a way to make this country better through my time and my resources in those areas that folks are, we said left before, left behind. And big benefit, the huge benefit, is we don't have to take PAC, special interest, lobbyist, corporate money. Last year, over $2 billion, $1.3 billion in direct contributions, probably another billion dollars in indirect contributions through dark money, went to members at the federal level. It's over $2 billion. And I think everybody in America uh, is pretty smart. And the population says, these guys got $2 billion, and they must have done something for that $2 billion bucks. Hello? I mean, we weren't born yesterday. And then what really gets me is when they leave Congress, they go become a lobbyist. You know, 400 members, Tom, of Congress are now lobbyists. So they're taking the money of whether it is the National Restaurant Association, the National Rifle Association, big pharma, big corporations that drive their taxes down, cause our medical costs to go up, and then they go work for them. I mean, that's a corrupt, rigged system. And you call uh, in a plan you just released this morning, as a matter of fact, for uh, the end of PAC contributions, corporate contributions. Might that uh, have a negative impact in that it would lead to only people with significant personal resources running for office? No, we, and I, it's really important to get the money uh, that you can't see where it's coming from. You know, in our case, you know exactly it's my dollars that I earned, and I can spend them to do good in the House, do good in the Senate, or give it to my kids when I'm dead. I chose to try and work on addiction and education. 
and, you know, criminal justice and economic justice. So I made a choice, conscious choice. And my kids, they're going to be fine with that because I'm the one that worked hard, really hard. And we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk some more about some of the other proposals, including term limits and some other things that uh, you are uh, rolling out just this morning. Representative David Trone is a candidate in the Democratic primary for the U.S. Senate. We'll have more with Congressman Trone on the other side of a quick break. You are welcome to join us when we come back. 410-662-8780, our email midday at WIPR.org. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. This is Baltimore's NPR News Station, 88.1 WYPR. Here we go. And welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Coming up tomorrow, Senator Chris Van Hollen joins me. We'll talk about his recent trip to the Middle East and his call for a humanitarian ceasefire to gain the release of hostages and provide aid to Gazans. Plus, Jonas Schaefer of the Baltimore Banner. We'll talk about what the keys to success will be when the Ravens take on the Chiefs in the AFC Championship game on Sunday. So that's coming up tomorrow. And if you've just joined us today, it's the latest installment in our series of Conversations with the Candidates. I'm spending some quality time with the major candidates for Baltimore mayor and city council, president, the House of Representatives, and the United States Senate. All of these conversations are collected on the Midday webpage at WIPR. Org. My guest today is Representative David Trone. He is a candidate in the Democratic primary for the U.S. Senate. The incumbent in that seat, Ben Cardin, will retire next January. You are welcome to join us. Our conversation uh, with uh, Representative Trone, 410-662-8780, our email midday at WIPR.org. So uh, what can you accomplish in the Senate that you can't accomplish in the House? What's the, what's the allure uh, and appeal of the Senate to you? Well, first of all, I want to interject. Uh, the Ravens got a win here. I mean, we've had enough Taylor Swift. I mean, let's just get focused <laughs> on football <laughs> and Lamar and uh, and getting over the top and back to the big game. Um, so secondarily, um, I want to just talk a little bit more about the people over politics uh, reforms we've been hitting on. And they're part of what we want to do in the Senate. And the first piece of that is I think really, really important, and American people strongly support it, and that is term limits. You know, we have got to get new people, fresh people, different people, not career politicians, that the only job they ever had is run for one office and then the next office and then the next office. We need folks that have done other things. They've been a firefighter. Uh, they've been a... a a businessman, they've been a doctor, they've been, you know, had careers. And so our proposal is 12 years in the U.S. Senate and you're done. Or 12 years in the House of Representatives, six terms. Or you could do both. But it's a get in, do good, have a mission like we do, and then go back to public, go back to what the founding fathers thought about. Yeah, but you serve know, and go home. When folks come in and say that to me, I understand that. You're not the first person to, uh, you know, assert that. Uh, perspective. 
Um, we talk about career politicians. Think about the guy whose seat uh, is is going to be open next January. I mean, Ben Cardin's been in public life at the state level and the federal level for 50 years, and there's plenty of people who are very happy that he's stuck around as long as he has. And, Tom, you're absolutely right. You get some great, great folks, and Ben Cardin is spectacular and has always been spectacular. And But at the end of the day, you've got to think it really think big on this and think about for every Ben Cardin, there's 10 Chuck Grassleys and there's 10 other folks that just aren't towing the line. And so we're going to, sometimes you, you lose something that's really great and, and Ben is fantastic, but you would have a chance to get Mitch McConnell, who's clearly shouldn't be working for health reasons. Chuck Grassley's almost 90 years old and he's running. I mean, these are just make no sense. We need folks to come in, not be a captive of the system, and be in there not just about reelection, but to be in there to get things accomplished. There are those so I love say, term limits. There are those who say that it's, it's unconstitutional in the way that, you know, if you're denying somebody the right to vote for some particular person, like I'm personally mystified how people could think that uh, Mr. Trump would be a good president a second time around. It, it, I, I don't understand it, but should they be denied the, the right and the opportunity to vote for him? Oh, I, I see that. Trump is an absolute nightmare, the, the worst thing that's ever happened to our, our country. You know, I'm hopefully goes to jail, and I think he's earned it uh, time and time again. Uh, but at the same time, it, it's just, you know, common sense tells us if someone's in that job for 20, 30, 40 years, they're not in their best condition, mental acuity at age 75, 85, 95, we got to kind of think big picture and uh, and begin the discussion about we're better off to try some folks that have new ideas and be willing to serve and get in a place of leadership. Right now, when they want to go into Congress, they think, well, I can't lead a committee, get a gavel until 30 years in Congress. Well, if you could get a gavel at year eight and lead the Appropriations Committee and lead the Judiciary Committee and make real change, that'd be a great day. You've been in the Congress in the House for six years uh, almost. Uh, you also call as part of your uh, reforms uh, for the expansion of the House of Representatives. There's 435 now. You're talking about expanding it to 565, I think. Make the districts smaller. Would that be a, a guard against gerrymandering, for example? Yeah, I think the districts being smaller would give us more diversity in the districts, and it would give us better constituent services. The districts have grown and grown and grown. Did you know between... 1829 and 1913, we enlarged the House of Representatives 52 times. From 1913 on, never. So we just stopped adapting, yet our population is 300 times more, you know, 300% increase. So we think by, again, thinking out of the box, trying to think about how we make government better. When government's got an 8 9% rating, I think you sit back and say, we got to change something. I mean, if we're going to help people, we got to get change. So our proposal is add 150 members to make it 585 from 435 and then tie it into census. And it would still go, each state would have the appropriate amount. We think it gets better diversity, better constituent services. Uh, you also call for a ban on individual stock trading by sitting members of 
the federal government, uh, the House and the Senate, for example. Uh, Tom, that's Tom, that's so important. I mean, you don't go to Washington for these folks to get rich. Did you know that 50 percent of the stock members of Congress actually trade themselves individual stocks? That's outrageous. They know which way things are going. They know what things are going to be changing, and yet they're trading stocks. So our proposal is to ban all individual stock trading 100% and put everything in a blind, qualified trust. The political bifurcation in this country has been uh, exacerbated considerably by Mr. Trump since 2015. Um, He is the leading candidate right now. Uh, Clearly, he's going to be the nominee of the Republican Party. how does one, how, how would you as a senator handle this bifurcation, handle this, these deep divisions uh, that are certainly, uh, you know, apparent in the House with the 400 plus members, uh, but in the Senate with 100 members uh, still, the, the bifurcation is uh, severe and acute. Uh, you, you are a progressive, but you also want to position yourself as a, a reach across the aisle kind of guy. Uh, Tom, you nailed it there. And just uh, just one quick sidebar. The last piece of that people over politics is term limits for Supreme Court and all federally appointed judges. We're suggesting 18 years, every two years, every two years for nine cycles, two members come on and off the Supreme Court and a code of ethics. How can they not possibly have a code of ethics. So that was the last big proposal of that. But you really hit the nail on the head on the biggest issue we have. I mean, there are just folks on the hard right, and we have some on the hard left, that don't want to do anything to help our country. I mean, the idea here is to serve and move America in a positive way, and they want to do nothing but burn the house down. So the answer on that is, well, I'm a clearly the most progressive candidate in this race. I've been with the American Civil Liberties Union for two, three decades now. I mean, and done a tremendous amount of work in criminal justice with the ACLU. But at the same time, you know, I know how to talk to other folks and work across the aisle. I'm ranked the 10th out of 535 members, most bipartisan, 10 out of 535, because I reach over get to know the folks on the other side of the aisle. And because I'm not out raising money all the time. When folks are on call time, raising money 40, 45% of their time, they don't have time to do this. I go over and meet the other side. Don't talk to the 40 crazies. They're just crazy. Instead, talk to folks that have maybe mental illness in their family. And you can find Republicans that struggle. You can find Republicans that struggle with addiction in their family that are justice impacted or believe in second chances for returning citizens like we do. So there's lots of opportunities there to work across the aisle, but you got to get to know people. You got to sit with them side by side. And that's how you build connectivity. David Trone is my guest. He's a congressman representing the 6th District, and he is a candidate for Senate. He's running in the Democratic primary on May 14th for the seat that is currently held by Ben Cardin. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Our number, 410-662-8780. Our email, midday at wipr.org. We have an email from Jackie, a congressman who says the U.S. health care system isn't working. Medicare for all would provide every U.S. resident with comprehensive health care coverage from birth to death. Universal health care is popular in Baltimore. Uh, our Congressman Kwasiem Fume is a co-sponsor of the Medicare for All Act in the House. Uh, as a senator, if you are elected, uh, what's your position on Medicare for All? Well, first of all, health care is a human right. 
Everyone has to have health care. Whether you're a TPS, you're undocumented, we've got to have health care for everybody. We believe in taking the Medicare age down to 55. That'll begin to open up Medicare for all so we have coverage. But at the same time, uh, we're with President Obama. President Obama's position has been, if we started over from scratch, 100% health care for all is the way to go. The problem is we've got about 167 million people that have a health plan, and many of them are my friends in labor who have a great Cadillac health plan, and they gave up dollars per hour to get better, better, better health care plan. And we would like to not lose all those benefits that they've accrued, which Medicare for all would wipe out immediately. We have 100% pro-labor rating. We've been endorsed by the teachers unions, IBEW, you name it, across the board. And that's a really big factor uh, for labor in this country, uh, what they've gained through hard bargaining, and they would lose Medicare for all. So we're on that road to there. We're on the road to get there by dropping to 55, but we got to have backup so everybody can be covered. Let's talk about foreign policy. Uh, Israel, Gaza, the uh, horrible war there that's uh, more than 100 days old here. Uh, Senator Van Hollen is coming on the show tomorrow. He's called for an extended ceasefire to get aid in, and uh, he thinks that a ceasefire is the way to get the hostages out. Um, where are you on the on the ceasefire proposals that uh, we even think some folks in the uh, Biden administration are uh, encouraging the Netanyahu government to do? Yeah, we're on record uh, strongly, strongly uh, supporting a ceasefire and simultaneously getting those hostages released. There's probably 106 hostages that are alive. Uh, 30 bodies are probably being are being held as the estimate. Uh, but besides the ceasefire and the hostage released, we've got to get billions of dollars of humanitarian aid. I mean, think about what happened in World War II in Japan and Germany. Those countries were leveled. Well, Israel has leveled Gaza, and we have a responsibility to lead and bring in the 20-some Arab countries to help us. I'm co-chairman of the Abraham Accords Caucus and the co-founder with with Brad Schneider of of Chicago. We have two Democrats and two Republicans that lead the Abraham Accords Caucus. And what that's all about is how we get all the Arab countries to work together to help the situation in Gaza, principally, right now. So we need everybody, starting with Saudi Arabia, they're the most important country out there that has the the resources to step up with the United States and figure out what Gaza 2.0 looks like. Because we've got to give folks in Gaza, and Netanyahu, I've been very critical of Netanyahu, and he led Israel down a bad road when he ignored Gaza and didn't support folks to have Gaza to build a, a life to figure out how to get a job, figure out how to have hope. And without that, the folks in Gaza had nothing, and it led to a a terrorist society. And so we also need to work hard on the Israeli government. And I've called the Netanyahu's. I think his time has has, has run out. And I think most of the Israeli people feel the same way. Reuters is reporting that uh, there are evidently talks uh, between uh, Qataris and uh, other people behind the scenes uh, about a one-month truce in Gaza, uh, and that there are uh, intensive talks uh, in that regard to do these things that uh, some of what you're talking about, getting aid in and supposedly releasing hostages, which, of course, Hamas is still holding. Um, How much pressure should the United States be putting on the Israeli government, and uh, is the Biden administration doing uh, handling this the right way? 
Yeah, we need to continue to realize that uh, what Hamas did is was terrorism uh, and just horrible. But at the same time, uh, a life is a life, and we're you know twenty some thousand folks in Gaza have died, and you know we have to work with the Biden administration, work with uh, the Israeli government, uh, and figure out a way to get to ceasefire, get to hostage release, and then get to the real hard work. The hard work is what comes next. You know, what we're going to do next. I've already had three briefings by three different think tanks about, you know, who's going to be there on the ground. I mean, think about that. I don't think Israel wants to occupy again. Uh, I don't think the United Nations would be acceptable to occupy again from Israel's standpoint. Should it be a U.S.-led? Should it be an Arab-led occupant? Someone has to be there to restore law and order while we have a chance to rebuild a country and give these folks a, a chance to have a life. Let me respond to uh, a listener, uh, Hannon, uh, who says, is it true that you've accepted money from APAC? That's the big uh, Jewish lobby here in the United States. Yeah, we don't take PAC money. APEC is a is a, just a Jewish lobbying group. Uh, they don't give money themselves, but members that belong to APAC will write individual personal checks, and we take individual personal checks. But quite frankly, I also donate money to APEC, so we're not beholden to anybody uh, whatsoever. Let's talk about uh, immigration reform, and I tell you what, we'll do that after a quick break. We do want to talk about a variety of issues with Congressman David Trone. He is a candidate for the Dem- in the Democratic primary for United States Senate, and we will have more after this quick break. Our number here, 410-662-8780. Our email is midday at WIPR.org. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. This is Baltimore's NPR News Station, 88.1 WIPR. And welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, my guest is Representative David Trone. He's running for the Democratic nomination for the U.S. Senate seat currently held by Senator Ben Cardin. The primary is on May 14th. His principal opponent in that race is Prince George's County Executive Angela Alsobrooks. We've been in touch with the Alsobrooks campaign, and we look forward to scheduling her appearance on Midday soon as part of our Conversations with the Candidates series. Representative Trone will be with us until the top of the hour. You're welcome to join us as well. 410-662-8780, our email, midday at WIPR.org. Um, let's talk about immigration and immigration reform. People talk about how the entire system needs to be uh, reformed. There are senators, as we speak, uh, working on uh, some sort of compromise that would at least move the needle a little bit. There's resistance to that in the House uh, if uh, Speaker Mike Johnson is to be believed. Uh, what would your approach to immigration reform be uh, should you be elected to the Senate? Yeah, I think it's a really great question. And one of the biggest things that I'd like to tackle in the U.S. Senate is immigrants create the success of our country, and they've done so for hundreds of years. All the immigrants bring in new ideas, and the new ideas is what drives business in this country. And we've seen that wave after wave after wave, that all of a sudden we just stopped immigration from coming, and folks like 
President Trump are just so dead wrong on this that we need to totally redo the immigration policy from the ground up. Yes, we got to have a secure border. Of course, a country needs a secure border. We're certainly not building a wall. That's a pretty dumb idea. But at the end of the day, we've got to figure out how to move our immigration numbers from roughly 1 million people a year we allow in legally, legal immigration, roughly 1 million a year. It's been that way for 25 years. Our proposal, we're on record, is to move that number to 5 million people and have a certainty of when you can become a U.S. citizen. Our proposal is just take staffing. I understand staffing. Is have it staffed that within five years of your application to, on the road to citizenship, you become a U.S. citizen. So we give it certainty and we give folks the ability to get here. Does but it matter how you get in? If you if you cross the river, do you qualify for that or if you go through uh, a checkpoint? We're looking through the checkpoints, through the checkpoints, but we need to go into Venezuela, El Salvador, Guatemala, Ghana, Cameroon, all these other countries where folks want to be here, Haiti, and have our off our offices, our embassies, be able to take folks right then and there, process their application, and if they have related family members here, they would get priority. And people could bring their brothers, sisters, cousins, uncles here to America. And we need those workers here to fuel our economy, our construction industry. 650,000 people short alone. And then they have a certainty of getting in. And we need folks who want to come here to be educated. Anyone who wants to come here and take one course, our proposal is you get a road to citizenship. One course. What if we have all the smart people in the world here? My guess is, Tom, our economy, I mean, companies like Google, eBay, Apple, were all created by second-generation immigrants. Immigrants create hundreds of millions of dollars of jobs, and this should be bipartisan. Republicans think business is their forte. Well, immigrants are what's going to drive business and let us beat China to the table every single time. Immigrants will let us solve the national debt problem because they'll create earned income that can then be taxed and we can drive the national $33 trillion debt down. And immigrants give us so much more mosaic of diversity that our country will be stronger for that. Well, of course, it's it's uh, a matter of uh, whether or not the, the laws that we currently have uh, are, are just, are effective, are uh, the right policy. Because, you know, whether it's one million or five million immigrants, as you're suggesting, it's how they come in. I mean, it's the, the, the method uh, that they use. I mean, we have Remain in Mexico, uh, which was under the Trump administration, to just simply try to keep people from crossing the border illegally. You've got all this stuff going on in Texas with, you know, Abbott, Governor Abbott there uh, flying people to New York and Chicago and Miami and other places. Um, so it, it's a it's a chaotic mess right now. How does one limit the number of people coming in illegally and channel those people uh, to become legal immigrants? It's absolutely the key. The way you do it is you get out in front of it. And by getting out in front of it, people see a way they can get here legally. We don't want people to make a thousand-mile journey from Haiti or Honduras or El Salvador and have the cartels pry on them. The cartels take what little money they have, subject them to all kinds of horrors from these cartels. We have to eliminate those folks walking. Instead, we go to them. We meet them where they are. And then that will eventually 
slowly, when they see the alternative, that they don't need to hire the cartels to walk a 1,000 miles. They can walk to the U.S. Embassy and find out if they're going to be processed, yes or no. And But it's not going to be easy. It's going to be messy. It's not going to be perfect. But what is? Let's go to the phones. Robert is, uh, I understand, a member of the Democratic Central Committee here in Baltimore. Welcome to Midday with Congressman David Trone. Hi, Congressman. Uh, as as identified, I am a member of the Democratic Central Committee in District 46 with stretches from Dundalk all the way around to Curtis Bay. I want to know, as an elected senator, what you will do to help team up with us to tackle the tough economic problems we have here in Baltimore City. Uh, we feel disconnected from our elected representatives across the board that you and Executive also, Brooks, represent areas of the state that we feel disconnected from. We don't feel like we are gaining the respect and the attention that we need to help solve our problems. So I would just love to hear your comments on that. Now, I'll tell you, I think it's a great, great question, Robert, and I appreciate it. And we, I try and talk about it as often as I can. And when I talk to Senator Cardin a lot about what's needed for this office, uh, when I talk with Ben, we came back time and time again to focus on Baltimore Baltimore is the center of this state. It's the engine that drives it. And it has been struggling for a long time with almost 35,000 housing units empty right now, struggling with crime, struggling with education. So we've got to figure out how to get Baltimore-centric. I want to be and will be the senator from Baltimore. And if that means, and I think it will mean, having a place to sleep here in Baltimore, being part of Baltimore. So you're not driving here three times a week, which I'm currently literally here two or three times every single week because this I was here yesterday. I'll be here tomorrow. And I'm staying over tonight, <laughs> matter of fact. So we've got to drive on Baltimore and we got to partner with the mayor's office. We got it's great to see Bloomberg stepping up. We got to partner with Westmore and Annapolis, and we've got to bring everybody to the table, and we've got to bring federal dollars here for housing. Baltimore has the best, the only place for significant housing stock in the eastern seaboard between Boston and Washington. This housing stock is here. We've got to figure out how to use it. It's going to be a lot of greening. It's going to be refurbishment. It's going to be investment. It's going to be jobs. But I understand how to follow the money. I became on the Appropriations Committee in my second term. I understand how money flows, and we got to get money flowing to Baltimore and work on the transportation piece So, because transportation here is horrendous on public transportation. So we totally support Westmore and the great work he's trying to do to get the red line back. Let's keep uh, on the phones. Let's go to Curry, who's calling from Dickerson, Maryland. That's in Montgomery County. Curry, I understand you'd like to ask the congressman about environmental concerns. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you so much, Tom. I love this show, and I especially love this particular uh, the conversations with the candidates. Congressman Trone, I am a current constituent. I think you're wonderful. You will have my vote. You have a fabulous staff. Um, I understand your specific a great interest in addiction and substance abuse. Um, in the Senate, I really want to see you spend more time on the climate crisis. Um, the Earth is going to outlive us, and it would be nice, and, you know, it'll last way past, I mean, I'm 66, it'll last way past my death, but if we're going to have people on this planet and a whole bunch of other species, we need to be doing something now. 
like electrifying everything. Okay, thank you, Curry. I appreciate the call. Uh, environmental policy. I mean, the, the Biden administration did uh, pass the you know the biggest uh, spending on environmental uh, initiatives uh, in the last thirty years. No, the Biden administration stepped up in a big way, but Corey is uh, dead right. I mean, Congress is very short-term, and I speak about this consistently, short-term myopic, thinking two-year cycles. In business, we learn to think long-term. Long-term is two things. First, invest in your people. That's investing in education. Invest in our teachers. Invest in IDEA. Invest in mental mental health money for our public schools, K-12. to Drive our people for the future and they've got to have a spot to live. If we don't get the environment right, nothing, nothing else matters. I mean, that's why we have, you know, 100% rating with Sierra Club, et cetera, et cetera. We've got to nail the environment. And, Corey, I'm happy and completely uh, in, in agreement on spending as much time and more time and then more time. But we've got to electrify this country, and we've got to do a lot of things, just like high-speed rail. <laughs> high-speed rail... In Europe, they're trying to take every plane trip that's over two hours, under two hours, eliminate it because of what it does to our environment. The airplanes pollute at a huge rate. These short flights should be replaced, replaced with clean, high-speed rail. And why does America have nothing? Well, it's, again, the PACs, the lobbyists, the moneyed interests don't want things to change. So they don't change. But we need to put this, first and foremost, uh, I we had a great commercial on this. We ran up here in Baltimore heavily, and Tom and I were talking about it earlier, uh, just really hammering on the importance of you know saving our saving our world. Uh, I want to ask you about women's reproductive rights. We have a, a, a caller on the line, Lamont, who I think wants to ask uh, about the same thing. Welcome to the show with Congressman David Trone. Lamont, are you there? Well, let me ask you, since we can't, we seem to have lost Lamont, do you pr- uh, support uh, federal legislation to enshrine Roe v. Wade in federal statute? Yes. Yes, I voted uh, to replace Roe v. Wade after the Dobbs decision. We passed that bill in the 117th Congress. I was a co-sponsor and voted for it. I have 100% rating with Planned Parenthood, 100% with NARAL. As a matter of fact, we've lost over 65 abortion clinics now in this country in 15 states. So they are taking action against women's reproductive freedom all over America. We can see it cascading. And those that are struggling, low incomes, often are minorities, are not going to get a safe and be able to make their own decision on abortion. We funded and helped start an abortion clinic in Red Cumberland. So in Allegheny County, and I went up for the opening I gave us cut the ribbon, and now we have an abortion clinic right there in Allegheny County, serving West Virginia. In the Republican uh, primary for president, Nikki Haley is also uh, often asked, "Would you support a federal ban on abortion?" And she dismisses it as, you know, pie in the sky. It's never going to happen because of the Senate. Do you believe her? Is there a possibility, if there's a Republican-led Senate, that there could be a a, a federal ban on abortion? If Mitch McConnell uh, eliminated the filibuster. They could get 51 votes, and they could do it. So if we uh, have to win, we can't lose the Senate. If Donald Trump is the uh, nominee uh, for president, do you expect that the, the Democrats would be able to hold the Senate? I'm very concerned about the Senate. I think we're going to have a chance to win the House. Hakeem Jeffries will be a spectacular Speaker of the House. He's endorsed us. 
But uh, the House, the Senate itself, uh, having lost Manchin, we're 50-50. We've got three states that are right on the brink, and we have no states that we're likely to take. Uh, we're very concerned about that, and it could be catastrophic for women's rights. That's all the time we have. I look forward to our next occasion to speak. Congressman David Trone, he is a candidate for the Democratic nomination in the U.S. Senate for the seat being vacated by Senator Ben Cardin, who's retiring after three terms. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks, Tom. That was fun. That's it for today's installment in our series of conversations with the candidate. Our series continues next week. On Tuesday, I'll speak with Shannon Snee. She's a former candidate for lieutenant governor, and she's running for Baltimore City Council president. All of my conversations with the candidates are collected on the WIPR website, so you can check them out anytime on demand. Coming up tomorrow, Senator Chris Van Hollen will join me. He's not running for Senate this election cycle. We'll talk about his recent trip to the Middle East, plus Jonas Schaefer, the Baltimore Banner, stops by Studio A to talk football. Here and Now is up next. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great day. You're listening to Your Public Radio, member-supported 88.1 WIPR.